Good morning, Tapestry. Um, it is uh, my favorite week of the year as my favorite holiday is coming up this Thursday. That's right, it is Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know why I love it. Parts of it are very terrible, but parts of it are very delicious. That's why I love it. Um, so I, I wanted to take a week in between series. We wrapped up our heavy series on fear and we're gonna be starting on some Christmas stuff here coming up after Thanksgiving. And I wanted to take a you know, just a week to talk about, let's be light, let's be thankful. What do we have? What are we doing? Um, but you all know me. <laughs> as, I, as I started thinking about being thankful during Thanksgiving this year, I was just overwhelmed with how difficult of a year this has been. I mean, we've got over a quarter of a million Americans who sat around Thanksgiving tables with their family last year who are no longer here because they've died from this virus that is ravaging our nation. People have lost jobs. People have lost their livelihoods. Emotional and mental health issues from isolation are just starting to get out of control. Relationships have fallen apart because of all of the other things going on. A country is violently divided over issues like race and politics and religion. Um, children are missing out on childhood experience of sports and normal school and you know, and I, I have to admit that, you know, as, assuming an attitude of thanksgiving is a little bit difficult for me this year. And I'm sure for many of you, you're probably in the same boat. You're probably in the same boat. So as I was preparing for this week, I, I, I found myself being drawn to instances um, specifically in the New Testament when the church was just getting underway of the, the church being in the midst of times that weren't well, times that were difficult, times where there was suffering going on. And it would have been easy for them to act accordingly to the situation around them, to act without gratitude, to act without thankfulness. Um, when Peter was miraculously freed from prison, um, as soon as it happened, he went, he went to Mary's house, not Jesus' Mary, not Mary Magdalene. Everybody seems to be named Mary um, in, in the New Testament, but, but went to Mary's house where, where there was a group of believers who were holding a prayer service for him. And, and, and he shows up and he, he, was, he was there for a while, um, but then he sort of ghosted them and he left and, and, and he did that because, because he didn't want them to get in trouble for him being there, for harboring a, an escaped prisoner. But, but here's his final statement as he disappears into the streets. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, who was the brother of Jesus, tell James, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. 
And then he left for another place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us where Peter went. He just says another place. And nobody knows where he went from there. He went in, he essentially went into hiding. He, he lives for another eight years um, or so, makes his way to Rome, um, wrote letters and taught Christians um, uh, all in the shadow of the emperor of Rome. Um, but eventually he was rested again and he finds himself back in jail. And while awaiting uh, his trial in Rome, he dictates uh, a letter um, that essentially was the memories uh, of the life and teachings of Jesus, right? And he dictated this to his traveling companion, John Mark, um, who happened to be the son of the Mary whose house it was that he went to as soon as he got out of prison. Um, now, apparently when Peter ghosted them all and disappeared to places unknown, apparently John Mark went with him. And so imagine being his mom in that situation, right? Hey, mom, like we've been praying for this guy and this is awesome and we're followers of Jesus and uh, he's getting ready to take off. And, um, you know, I know he's got a, I know he's wanted, I know he's got a price on his head and I'm probably never going to see you again, but I'm going with him. Could you imagine as a mother getting that, dealing with that, right? But these dictations that he took for Peter on more than one occasion would circulate around the Roman Empire. And this one in particular became known as what we now call the book of Mark. All right, the book of Mark, but it wasn't Mark's story. It was Peter's story of his time with Jesus. Well, Peter was eventually executed during the reign of Nero and the author of a, of a late second century work actually claimed that, that Peter, because he did not find himself worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus, requested that he be crucified upside down. Um, uh, Romans weren't um, really keen on granting wishes to people they were getting ready to kill. So I don't know if that actually <laughs> happened or not. Um, but while he was still on the run, Peter had dictated at least, at least two other letters to followers of Jesus. And we know them as first and second Peter. And these were for Christians who were scattered throughout the entire Roman empire because of uh, persecution that originated in Jerusalem. So all over the empire, the, these little house churches are popping up all over the place. And people did not know what to make of these churches popping up and, and the people who comprise these things because these Jewish people, they, they, or the people in these churches, they, they weren't Jewish, but they weren't pagan, right? They worshiped the Jewish God, but they did it on the wrong day of the week, right? They were good people and good citizens, but they weren't kosher, right? They formed their own communities, but yet they weren't exclusive, Right? And they invited others in. And they went out of their way to take care of people that no one else would take care of. But, and this is a big, big one, there was a problem. And this was the sticking point between the people in the Roman Empire and these churches, the little house churches that were popping up all over the place in this community. The one thing that these people didn't do 
was they didn't sacrifice or worship or acknowledge local deities or gods, right? What they wouldn't do is they wouldn't make those sacrifices. And that was a problem. And here's why that was a problem. Because in, in ancient times, adding a God to the list of gods, that was no big deal. People did that all the time, added their God to the list of gods. Um, but ignoring a God, right? That was big trouble because the last thing that people um, living on the edge of survival, which listen, most ancient towns and cities were people who were living on the edge. They were living on the edge of starvation and they were living on the edge of wars and unrest. They were, they were living on the edge. The last thing people in that kind of life wanted to do was upset the gods, because fundamental to the culture was the assumption that Rome and the Roman Empire was eternal. But it was only eternal so long as they had the favor of the gods, right? And the gods were infamously finicky, right? They were just mad all the time for no reason and doing, you know, coming down on people and killing people. So keeping the gods happy, um, was essentially a matter of national security in Rome, in the Roman Empire, right? Which is why what these Jesus followers were doing and not acknowledging and not worshiping the gods, it's what made it so problematic. And as a result, anytime anything bad happened, right? Anytime, um, anytime there was, there was uh, famine or sickness or some kind of unrest or military defeat, um, the locals would blame it on the Jewish people, uh, or not on the Jewish people, on the people in these little pop-up churches, these Jesus followers, they would blame it on them because the term Christian wasn't around yet. They would blame it on them. They'd call them, call them, gen, they'd call them uh, uh, Galileans is what they would call them. They would blame it on the Galileans, Every time, because, oh, they weren't worried the gods are mad at them. And so they caused all the trouble that there was. In fact, scapegoating Christians uh, was so common um, that Tertullian, who was an adult convert to Christianity and was the son of a Roman centurion, he wrote this about scapegoating Christians. If the Tiber rises too high, and the Tiber was the river that, that ran through the city of Rome um, and was the source of fresh water and trade. Um, and not only was it that, but it was also um, part of the sewage system. Hopefully they got the fresh water before the sewage system part came, came in. Whew. But when it flooded, you can imagine the levels of mess that that made, the levels of trouble that was caused by that. So if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, now the Nile River Basin in Egypt is where Rome purchased most of its grain from, right? And so, so if the, the Nile was the source of irrigation for all of that, all of those crops that they would buy. And so, so if the Nile was low, there would be a bad harvest, which would lead to um, an inflation of grain prices, which um, could create, you know, create problems, lead to civil unrest, probably even famine at certain times. So if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, he says, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. Because 
bad stuff came from the upset gods who were mad at the Christians. So let's, the reasoning said, get rid of Christians in the empire. So imagine the precariousness uh, of the position of Christians in the Roman empire. So amongst all of that, Peter writes them to comfort them, to encourage them in the middle of all this. And he told them, listen, these times of suffering that you feel, these times of suffering that you're going through, these troubles, um, trying to figure it all out. He, here, here's what he wrote. Here's what he wrote to them. He told them that God could use these times of suffering. He said, these, meaning their sufferings, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, in, in other words, if you get this right, people will not be able to doubt your faith. They just won't. Your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by the fire. But it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, let your behavior be uh, of such that it forces people to look to Jesus. Right, but not only did Peter contextualize their suffering for them, um, but he also gave them something to do, right? And he gave them something not to do, right? He, he said, listen, in the middle of navigating this suffering, don't, don't, don't circle the wagons and sit around just praying for Jesus to return, right? That, that's not what I want you to do. Instead, do this. And we might step on a few toes today, but... But here's what Peter told him to do. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also, meaning equip yourselves with the same thing. Take up the same thing as, so, okay, Peter, what are we going to arm ourselves with? Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. That is the same perspective, the same way of thinking that Jesus had, right? Think of how Jesus approached suffering and then take on that mindset. Now, Peter, probably knowing that people will try and interpret that and come up with things on there, and he, he didn't want to leave it, he didn't want to leave it up to them to, uh, to figure out what it was. He, he spells it out. He spells it out for them. He says, while you're in the midst of suffering and being blamed for literally everything, above all, meaning priority number one, Right? And what comes next should not be a surprise to you. In fact, when I say it, you're probably going to be like, oh, that again. Twitter, hey, yeah. But after all, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise Peter's writing it because he heard it straight from the mouth of Jesus multiple times. He says, above all, love each other deeply unwaveringly, earnestly. <laughs> We're like, wait, what? what? What, Peter and Mund, why? Well, what does that have to do with our suffering? And Peter's like, I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Sin will divide you. Love will unite you. And listen, Christians, he's saying, because he's writing this to Christians, you can't afford to be divided as a community right now. 
In this time of suffering, you need to be united as a community, as people are watching you and looking towards you. And then he gets painfully specific. Here's what he tells them to do. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, I know you're in the middle of suffering. I know you're getting blamed for everything. I know people you love are being killed. But when you see someone in need, provide for them. Take them in as Christ took you in. And he continues. He says, okay, while you're you're suffering, while you're uh, navigating the uncertainty, right? While you're being tempted to, to circle the wagons and focus only on yourselves, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, to which we might say, wait, 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 Peter. Wait, do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? Do you have any idea, right? (laughs) To which Peter might be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this is asking a lot. I know it is. But God asked a lot from Jesus on your behalf. And while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. But here's the good news. You don't have to die for anybody. (laughs) That's not what you're being asked to do. You're being asked to just love people, right? Love them in such a way that they have to look up, right? And here's what's amazing. That is exactly what these Christians in this situation did. It's exactly what they did. And without raising, they didn't even raise their voice, let alone raise an army, right? Without even raising an army, they raised the dignity of the people around them in the midst of misery and poverty and illness (laughs) that, that characterized ancient villages and cities back then. They elevated people out of that. Right? Christians provided an oasis of mercy and compassion in the midst of suffering, in the midst of dark times. Now, here's the part of the story where we, we may be able to, with what we've been through this last year, we may be able to really relate to this. This This attitude of loving others and the result of what it's shown is best best demonstrated during a series of um, epidemics that laid waste to the Roman Empire. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic. The only difference between an epidemic and a pandemic is miles. How many miles has it spread? That's it. So just imagine pandemic, but just for the people in the Roman Empire. Here's what's going on. Entire villages and towns were becoming graveyards. At the highest point of the the second epidemic, there were thousands of people a day dying in Rome. 
And when it broke out in Rome, many of the people, and especially those with wealth and power, they, they, they fled to the countryside. They got out of there, right? Yet Christians chose to stay. Christians didn't run for self-protection. They didn't, they didn't run to avoid catching the sickness that was going around. And as a result, the Christian communities, because they stayed and they cared for each other, the Christian communities fared far better than the pagan communities. Because the pagan communities, you know, they, 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 they were out of town. They, they were leaving their, they were leaving their family who were sick before they were even dead. They were dumping them on the side of the road. But the Christians went further than just staying and taking care of each other. The Christians also cared for their pagan neighbors who had been abandoned by their families. Neighbors who had refused to even speak to them because they did not worship the gods. Neighbors who scapegoated them and blamed them for everything that went wrong every time. They stayed and they cared for those neighbors. And these pagans were stunned by the compassion of the followers of Jesus. In fact, during the second great epidemic, um, Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria wrote a, a lengthy tribute to the Christians who had remained behind to care for the sick, many of whom ultimately lost their life because they decided to stay and care for those who were ill. He, he, here's, what, here's what he wrote. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life. In other words, many of them died because they chose to serve in this manner. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons and laymen winning high commendation so that the death in this form the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Now, now here's why this is so powerful. These brave Christians did not die because of what they believed. They didn't die for what they believed. They died by acting on what they believed. And, and this, in theory, this, this is what Jesus taught. That application of your belief is what gets noticed, not your belief. Nobody cares what you believe. But the way you act on your belief, that's when people take notice. They take notice of you acting on what you believe, especially when that action is not natural especially when that action is not self-serving and especially when that action requires courage. The, these Christians, they, they took it to a whole nother level, right? Dionysus also in the same writing, he, he wrote about the pagans that fled. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. 
At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. Meaning with their horses and wagons on the way out, they were just riding right over top of the corpses on the ground. The selfless behavior of Christians became impossible to ignore. The pagan world took notice and it was noticed by a culture that was characterized by greed. Well, you, you go back and you read the history of all of the cultures that followed the pantheons of the gods. Like they were characterized by greed. It was a culture of putting yourself first, which happened to reflect the value of the gods. But the God of the Christians was different, right? He, he had come to earth to die for them, right? And out of gratitude for that, out of gratitude for what Jesus had done, they in turn cared for those who could not care for themselves. So, just as a quick side note, I ask, in the midst of this pandemic, in a capitalist culture that is so focused on individual rights, has the response of those who called themselves followers of Jesus been focused on sacrifice and the good of others? Or has it been self-centered and focused on their own individual rights? I'll leave that to you to discuss amongst yourselves. But eventually, with the conversion of Emperor Constantine, some 300 years after the death of Jesus, um, the emperor of the empire who crucified him, um, Constantine embraced Jesus as a living God. Right? And whether Constantine's conversion um, was sincere or if it was political or maybe a mix of the, of the two, we'll never know. Um, but what we do know is this, is that what began as a disenfranchised, persecuted minority influenced the majority by refusing to employ the tools of the kingdom of this world. Instead, Instead, they gave, they served, they loved, they sacrificed, and the world changed. The world changed. In fact, about 20 years after Constantine's death, his nephew Julian became, became the emperor, and he abandoned Christianity. Right? Constantine had established Christianity as the official religion in the churches and, and, and Julian abandoned that. He wanted to turn back to the gods because he was still of the belief that everything that was going wrong was because the gods were angry. And so he reinstituted the pagan priesthood, right? Reinstituted sacrifices um, to, the, to the pagan gods. In, in fact, he even tried to because he knew that it was the charity of the Christians that caught everyone's attention. He tried to institute pagan charities, right? There had never been pagan charities before. And the reason is because the pagan gods 
were not charitable. But none of it worked. And the reason that none of it took hold and that they, the Roman Empire did not turn back to the gods and to paganism was because, uh, because the roots of Christian compassion had grabbed hold. And they were already established in the empire. There, there was no turning back. Well, Julian, he, he was so frustrated that he wasn't able to make it work that, that he started writing letters to the, to the pagan priests and, and he's telling them, give wine and grain and you know, as much as you can to the poor people. So hopefully it'll bring them over to our sides. And in his, in his asking them to do this, he, he wrote this. He wrote, those pious Galileans in addition to taking care of their own people, they support ours as well. It is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. <laughs> but there was no response to Julian's request from the pagan priests. And it was because there was no tradition for them to build on, right? There was no, there was no tradition of, of others first in the pagan world. There was no tradition of give to those who cannot or will not return the favor. There, there was no tradition of God is love, of love your enemy. All of those things are distinctly Christian ideas, right? And, and they appeal, those ideas, they appeal to the soul. And those ideas, they point to a better way. But when Peter, when Peter instructed the early Christians to love deeply, um, it wasn't a strategy for political gain, right? Peter could never have envisioned Rome um, capitulating to Christian influence. As far as Peter knew, the Roman Empire was it. It was the biggest, strongest thing ever. And it was always going to be the biggest, strongest thing ever. But compassion, kindness, love, hospitality, um, those were not an avenue to power. <clears throat> to Peter, those things were just logical responses to the teachings and the sacrifice of Jesus, right? Because Jesus' followers had been given something that you could never put a price on. Here's what, here's what Peter had said. In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so while you're in your suffering early Christian church, while you're in your suffering Christians of today in this ridiculously terrible year, give, serve, Love. Now, here's the thing. For many people, and perhaps for you, you know, this is a dark Thanksgiving. 
And when things are dark, that's when I'm the most tempted to think about me and those around me and close ranks and just be focused on what I got to do to get me through it. My family, my finances, my health. It's when I'm tempted to just circle the wagons and close my heart to others. Um, But what has been true from from the moment that Jesus walked the earth throughout the history of the church to now is that when things are dark, that is when our light matters the most. It's when it matters the most. Why? Because it stands in contrast to everything else around it. So as followers of Jesus, let us not withdraw in this time of darkness. Because if we get this right, yeah, people may roll their eyes at what we believe. What? Some Jewish rabbi teacher guy 2,000 years ago came back from the dead? I'm so sure. But they will be amazed at how we behave. According to Jesus, that's the mark. That's the measure. By that alone, people will know that we are his followers. So listen, we all have been given an incredible gift through the grace of God. And the way grateful people, the way people who are thankful for what they've been given react is to turn and serve others, even when things are dark. Even when things are dark. I I have failed at this a lot. But as we approach this 2020 Thanksgiving, let us change our filter by which we decide what we have to be thankful for. And let us act in unnatural ways by serving others the way Christ served us, by being a light in this dark time, by acting in such a way that people have to notice. And when they do, they look to Jesus. That's how people who are thankful Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I I thank you. First of all, Lord, for the amazing examples that we have in the scriptures. Lord, I thank you that, that we have the benefit of time and hindsight to see how you have worked through so many dark times and dark situations to bring good out of it. And so, Lord, this Thanksgiving in a year that has been so difficult for so many people. Lord, let us not base our feelings of gratitude and our thankfulness on the circumstances around us, but let us base our thankfulness on what you have done for us. And because we are grateful, thankful people, let us in turn give to others that which you have given us and let us be a light in this dark time. 
Lord, I am eternally grateful for everything that you have done. Let me live in a way that is worthy of what I've received. Lord, I thank you for all you've done and for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, my family and I are going to be traveling this next week. And so we are going to be taking next weekend off. There will be no um, new service streaming next week. If you're really going to miss us, we've got a whole library on YouTube. You can go back and watch one of your favorites. But I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. And I'll see you in two weeks as we kick off our Christmas season.